the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeedy, and good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good to have you with us. It is the Thursday edition of Lifeline for this 24th day of January. Trust it's been a good week for you so far. We've got a good program lined up for you tonight. We're going to talk a bit about the shutdown. We're uh, well into month number two, and there's been some offers back and forth between the two sides, but nothing really solid, nothing that anybody wants to stand up and say, okay, we'll buy that compromise. We'll talk a bit more about it as talk show host Joyce Cordy joins us later on in this first hour. Portions of our program tonight, at least at the beginning, may not necessarily be most appropriate for young ears. So if you have young children around, you might want to busy them somewhere else. We're going to talk about a subject, though, that bears discussion. And quite frankly, at an appropriate age, it is a lesson in history which every child ought to be taught. It is the lesson of perhaps one of the greatest examples in human history of man's ultimate inhumanity toward mankind. I speak of the Holocaust, a humanitarian crisis of historical proportions that ultimately, against the backdrop of World War II, at one level or another, claimed the lives of more than 50 million people. Europe, of course, hardest hit and most concentrated in the villainous acts of the Nazi regime. This Sunday is Holocaust Remembrance Day. And coming in April, on the 11th to be precise, will mark the 74th anniversary of the liberation of one of the the more brutal Nazi concentration camps, Buchenwald, liberated just the day before the death of Franklin Roosevelt in 1945. And before we meet our guest tonight, I want to help contextualize part of this story for you. This is a recording done by CBS Radio's Edward R. Morrow, who accompanied Allied troops the day of the liberation of that concentration camp. Portions of this brief recording are marred a bit because they were recorded via shortwave and there was some shortwave radio interference. In spite of some of the technical quality, however, I believe that it does not detract from the historical value of the observations that Ed Murrow had that day in helping to better contextualize for us, 75 years later, the horror that many Europeans, and specifically European Jews, faced at the hands of the Nazi party. When I entered, men crowded around, tried to lift me to their shoulders. They were too weak. Many of them could not get out of bed. As I walked down to the end of the barracks, there was applause from the men too weak to get out of bed. It sounded like the hand clapping of babies. As we walked out into the courtyard, a man fell dead. 
Two others, they must have been over 60, were crawling towards the latrine. I saw it, but will not describe it. In another part of the camp, they showed me the children, hundreds of them. Some were only six. One rolled up his sleeve, showed me his number. It was tattooed on his arm. D-6030 it was. The others showed me their numbers. They will carry them till they die. The children clung to my hands and stared. We crossed to the courtyard. Men kept coming up to speak to me and to touch me. Professors from Poland, doctors from Vienna, men from all Europe. Men from the countries that made America. We proceeded to the small courtyard. There were two rows of bodies stacked up like cordwood. They were thin and very white. Some of the bodies were terribly bruised, though there seemed to be little flesh to bruise. Some had been shot through the head, but they bled but little. It appeared that most of the men and boys had died of starvation. They had not been executed. But the manner of death seemed unimportant. Murder had been done at Pugenwald. God alone knows how many men and boys have died there during the last 12 years. As I left that camp, a Frenchman who used to work for Havas in Paris came up to me and said, you will write something about this, perhaps. And he added, to write about this, you must have been here at least two years. And after that, you don't want to write anymore. I pray you to believe what I have said about Buchenwald. I have reported what I saw and heard, but only part of it. If I have offended you by this rather mild account of Buchenwald, I am not in the least sorry. That account, of course, by Edward R. Morrow, done on the day of the Camp Liberation, April 11th of 1945, highlighting some of the atrocities at one of the more infamous camps. And there were many camps by many names, names like Auschwitz, Dachau, uh, Ravensbrück, Treblinka, Sobibor, and Bergen-Belsen. Our guest today details inside the pages of a new book called The Last Train to the Concentration Camp, A Small Boy's Memories on the Train to Bergen-Belsen. This is the third in a series and, of course, released just in time to mark Holocaust Remembrance Day this Sunday. And pleased to have join us survivor of World War II in Europe, Dr. Dirk Van Leenen. Dr. Van Leenen, thanks so much for taking time not only to be with us today, but to share some of these amazing stories. And I understand that you've, um, in recent years, sort of made it your life's work to collect many of these stories, to share these experiences, hopefully make sure that younger generations never forget what happened in Europe during that period of time. Tell us a bit about this book. Okay. Uh, it is the third of a trilogy, and <clears throat> the first two books that come before explain how people were hunted down and also how people were hidden, how much it took, how much energy, but also courage to keep people alive and out of the hands of the Nazis. Well, that work is in the two, two first books with many other stories about the wartime. But my father, who was the center of the hiding, he was the head of the resistance in the city of The Hague. And in the city of The Hague, before the war, were about 10,000 Jewish people. And after the war, there were perhaps no more than 1,200 left over. Those people 
were rounded up like cattle. I remember in my street was a Jewish family, and I was four years old. And I saw the truck, the German truck in front of the house of our neighbors. They were Jewish. And they were coming out of the house with gun butts pushing in their back. And that family had two uh, uh, twins, two little girls of my age, four years old, and they were the cutest children. And they were grabbed by the soldiers by the arm and thrown into the truck like bags of potatoes. That is one of the stories, but many more. My father, who had, through the time, hidden more than a thousand people through our house, and I say through our house because they were in our house maybe for one or two or three days, and every night the um, resistance men would come and each take one person because it was, first of all, curfew. Secondly, any Jew on the street with a Gentile, both would be arrested if they were caught. And if they were caught after curfew, they were immediately transported to uh, the holding camps and then to the, the, the um, concentration camps. Um, it was very hard for me to write this all up because it were memories that are, um, yeah, hidden in my brain. And but anyway, after at the end of this Holocaust, a month before the very end of the war, my father was chased down, and they wanted to catch him because there was one Gestapo officer who had in mind to get a higher rank and, an, and some kind of medal for getting one more train full of people to a concentration camp. He made a lot of miscalculation, ended up in, in, in uh, a death chamber himself. But meanwhile, he chased my fighter down and uh, all the details I wouldn't go into because they are not graphic, but quite intense. And when he was caught, the 72 Jewish people were also caught in that hiding place and brought to a holding cell. And they're kept until the train load, the, the cattle wagon was full with 200 people. My father, in the meanwhile, was arrested, and his colleague too, and they were tortured for days. And the torture was so severe, they wanted him to surrender the addresses of the hiding places for the same Gestapo officer with ideals in his mind. Anyway, uh, after five days, the one colleague uh, gave up and gave the Nazis a list of addresses, but he was smart about it. He gave them addresses of hiding places that were empty, but and that stopped the torture. But my father was not giving away, and later he told me, he said, they could have killed me, I would have let them because I would never give away a hiding place. 
Anyway, they sent for my mother, and my mother was uh, with me, taken to the jail to clean up my father, and he was so wounded, scratched and and bruised and blood everywhere. And uh, she cleaned him up as much as she could, put him some fresh clothes on him, and then they, uh, my mother said to the soldiers, I'm ready to go home. And they said, no, ma'am, you're not going home. You're going on the train tomorrow. And that's where the horror began. Because this train was loaded with 200 people. Normally, it holds 20 cows. But 100 people, it took to press them in, push them in, until they are finally could close the door and there were 200 people standing the train took off and was on its way to uh, the only Dutch uh, concentration camp and that is Westerbork and that is a monument where we go uh, every year still go Um, but halfway down there the train stopped and it was stopped for six seven hours and we were there standing there without any food or any water any drinks and no bathroom and so tight that you couldn't even move your arm and then the train went going again because Westerbork was closed and the train had to be turned around and went into the direction of Germany But there it ran into battle lines and it had to stop and turn around. It ended up being four days and four nights standing without food, without bathroom, without drink, and 30 people came out dead. But the other people, when when we came out of the the car, uh, we, we were normally people were when they were arriving they were tattooed and registered this time it was midnight and the people were all pushed into a barrack which was already full of people and there we stood again although most people could hardly stand anymore there was no food there was no water in that camp were 60,000 people that was Bergen-Belsen Bergen-Belsen, by the way, was the last camp that was closed. And it was closed because the uh, British Army invaded it and liberated the camp. Now, that sounds all so simple, but it's detailed in my book, and it's very, very, very painful. It is um, significant, perhaps, to mention to listeners... um Dr. Van Leenen, that Bergen-Belsen is also historically significant in that it was the concentration camp where Anne Frank and her sister Margot was killed, was it not? Right there, but they did not die from hunger. They died from typhus. Typhus was so rampant there. First of all, the three months before the liberation, people had no more food. The Nazis were out of food completely, hardly anything for themselves. So people were eating rats if they could catch them. But those rats were eating in the mountains of dead bodies that were laying around everywhere. 
and they they caused typhus everywhere. And so many people, I think it was about 8,000 in that camp died of typhus. And uh, But there is uh, a good end to this story because the, uh, the British army came in and with hundreds of tanks and thousands of trucks in my little eyes, I, I couldn't understand it, but they brought food and they brought medics and medical supplies and clothing and there was hope. But unfortunately, after their arrival, it took three months before anybody could practically leave there. And in that three months time, half of them, 30,000 of them died of starvation. Those people that had not eaten for three months, they could not eat anymore. They couldn't hold water anymore. Their insides were dried up. And so that's why so many people had to pass away, uh, even though the camp was liberated. Then, of course, comes the situation on what do you do with all those people? They had to register with the British. They had to tell them how long they had been there and where they came from. And when my father gave his name, the officer looked up and said, are you the case, Van Rijn, from The Hague? And my father said, yes, but how do you know? And the officer said, we have been talking on the secret radio for the past three years. And what are you doing here? I haven't been able to reach you for the last three weeks. And so by sheer miracle, we were sent right back to Holland in a truck. However, that was not that easy because the battle was still going on around Holland and in Belgium and part of Germany. And so we ended up in Belgium and we stayed there with the resistance until three days later they said, we can get you into Holland, but mind you, Holland is still occupied and the Nazis are bedded down with cannons and bunkers and even the navies of the British, the American and the Canadian cannot get into all the rivers because there are so many bunkers with cannons and, and machine guns. And those rivers are wide. They're up to two miles wide in some places. So we went, we were brought over to Holland behind the Navy, and then we were on our own. And we went to a resistance man there, and he said, but you cannot go to The Hague like this. You will be uh, arrested. So they provided a box bicycle in which my mother, mother and I could sit, and uh, they made my father look like a woman. And that was the only way that we could go crossing all those rivers with cannons, cannons and machine guns everywhere, finally we arrived in our hometown. We found our house completely ransacked. So far ransacked that even the front windows and the front doors and all the doors in the house and the toilet and the kitchen, everything was stolen by the traitors. 
And that's a whole story in itself, because there were a lot of traitors in Holland that betrayed fellow citizens, and particularly those that had Jewish people in hiding, or just Jewish people. And those traitors had stolen all that material out of our house. We could not possibly live in it. And so we uh, stayed with others until five days later, the war in Holland ended, and that was on May 5, 19. The Germans really, um, they kept that stronghold right up to the bitter end in Holland, didn't they, yes. in the Netherlands? Very, given, very, very strong. I mean, given the fact that the, the German surrender uh, across the European continent and victory in Europe Day, it was only three days later on the, the 8th of May. You, you mentioned, uh, Dr. Van Leenen, about many of those that collaborated with the Nazis. Of course, that was not uh, simply unique to uh, the Netherlands, though there was a large socialist party there that, that largely worked and fascists that worked with the Nazis. Vichy France ran into the exact same problem. Um, a- at the end, what was the impact in terms of healing to the nation of the Netherlands, not just because of the ravages of World War II and the the terrible things that had been done to Jewish people, not just across the continent, but as you point out, there in uh, Holland specifically, and your father having been very involved in the Dutch resistance movement there and, and literally rescued the lives of, of hundreds of Jews. The healing process where there was supporters of Nazis and, 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 and faithful Dutch people living side by side that uh, six, seven years before had been friendly neighbors and now all of a sudden have been literally on the opposite sides. How long did it take for that healing process to really come to fruition in the Netherlands? About two years. Two years. That long. And the uh, right after the war, for three months, every Dutchman, true Dutchman, was hunting down the traitors. And they were jailed, and they were tried, and some of them had life in prison, and some of them ten years, and some of them got away with one year. Uh, but they, they were members of the official not. Nazi party, the National Socialistic Party in Germany, and Hitler did set up these parties in all the countries in Europe before the war began. I have in one of my book a meeting of the traitors of the NSBers, we called them, National Socialistic Movement. Uh, those people were totally sold to Hitler, sold out to Hitler. And when the soldiers came, all they had to do is visit all these people, those members of the National Socialistic Party, and uh, and tell them, now we're going to make it work, this National Socialism, and you can help us. And that's why they became traitors. It, it was um, a very, very distinct woven net of organizations, even the Jewish people, were, were cheated, because before the war, Jewish uh, people that were uh, in favor of National Socialism were sent to all the surrounding countries, and there they approached the, the Jewish leaders and asked them to form a Jewish council, and they were promised 
they would be the leaders of the Jewish people, and when they would be sent to concentration camp, that was not killing, but concentration of people, then later they would become the leaders of new cities with Jewish people mm. only. There are so many situations in this time and age of national socialism, of anti-Semitism, of uh, neo-Nazism. If you really count it up, it is scandalous. And the, one of the reasons why I wrote my books is, and also tell people, let your children read them, because then they can recognize what is happening in this time and age. And certainly there's a big perspective, a false one, that many have, that um, Hitler's decision to attack Poland in 1939 came late, and after uh, agreements and negotiations uh, had not gone as well, the Munich Pact, of course, was in place, but there was a lot of discontent concerning um, some of the occupied territories, territories that had belonged to Germany prior to the end of World War One. But people need to realize uh, this had been a frog in a kettle process going back many, many years. In fact, we talk about many of these concentration camps and subcamps, uh, estimates on the low end of over 1,200 ultimately across Nazi-occupied Europe. And the first camp, which would have been Nachau, was opened as far back as 1933, right at the cusp of Hitler being declared Chancellor of Germany. So this is not something that happened overnight. It was a slow, steady march into European Jewry destruction and, of course, ultimately claiming the lives of upwards of 50 million people across the continent. Um, Dr. Van Leenen, as our time winds up, for the benefit of those listening that perhaps know nothing of the events of World War II and the significance of the impact of the Holocaust, as we approach Holocaust Remembrance Day this weekend, what for you is perhaps the most important lesson that young people today need to take to heart, need to be aware of as we look into the future? False promises. False promises have been around forever, and in this time of age we hear them all the time on television and radio and in newspapers, unfortunately false promises that you cannot keep. You cannot keep a promise that you can uh, have universities filled with people for free. You cannot keep a promise to have uh, minimum wage jobs at $25, just to say say one word. There are so many uh, promises made everywhere And I'd like to point out one thing. In uh, North Korea, at this moment, there are dozens of concentration camps just like Germany had, the Nazis had. And the people in those concentration camps, millions, if they cannot work, they're simply shot. And that is also a sign of the time Then there is Iran who is saying uh, we're driving all the Jews out of Israel. And then there is the anti-Semitism of shootings in in synagogues and smearing synagogues and things like the Kristallnacht in Germany. But not as severe, of course. But 
that's happening. And sadly, we thought at the end of the war through 45, 46, 47, um, uh, during the Nuremberg trials, that the perpetrators of Nazism would be brought to justice, the world would learn its lesson, and this would be something that we would put behind us. Um, sadly, as you so aptly point out, Dr. Leiden, that um, much of this continues to this day, if not the actual outright concentration camps, as you correctly point out, that exist to this day in places like North Korea, and then, too, many of the false promises that are made at many turns by many people of many political persuasions that begin to soften up the base and prepare for the unthinkable. The book is called The Last Train to the Concentration Camp, A Small Boy's Memories on the Train to Bergen-Belsen. Dr. Dirk Van Leenen, his father, very actively involved in the Dutch resistance movement. Dr. Van Leenen, I know that it's a painful topic. We appreciate not only your efforts in sharing the book, but also sharing your time with us today. And more information, by the way, about this new book, again, newly released and uh, published by Civivale uh, Publications. You'll find it bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also find it at Dr. Van Leland's website, DirkVanLeland.com, and we'll put a link inside of the uh, podcast for you where you can get that information to order the book. The Last Train to the Concentration Camp, A Small Boy's Memories on the Train to Bergen-Belsen. 535. Traffic, here's Michael Bennett. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, uh, we're solidly into month number two of the longest government shutdown in history. And and while some have opined, gee, I don't feel the difference, maybe these um, essentials are not as essential as it seems, the reality is that a lot of folks are going to work, they're not getting paid, and um, others are just sitting, waiting, hoping. There seems to be no budge on either side, though plenty of proposals have been handed off. President indicating today there's still, quote, alternatives to end the government shutdown. Two Senate bills aimed at ending the shutdown failed to pass today. Trump told reporters at the White House that the Republican measures won, meaning that more people who voted to pass them than not, but acknowledged that both fell short of the 60-vote margin needed for passage. And that may indeed, that closer, be the sticking point here unless one side decides to cave. Let's talk a bit about where things stand. This is truly complicated. Joyce Cordy, who, of course, is host of Reimagine America, heard every Sunday at 9 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m., the answer. And, and Joyce, I know that we're, we're now into uncharted territory here. Uh, we've never seen this before, and I don't know, certainly in my lifetime, that I've ever seen a greater division both between the executive branch and Congress and between the two houses of Congress and the two parties in Congress ever before. Well, part of the problem is that it is politics before it is governance. And those are two separate things, and we can't seem to keep them separate anymore. So I think that's part of the problem. Um, and then you have this contest between the president and Nancy Pelosi, and neither of them is inclined to give an inch. I mean, Schumer and, and McConnell could have settled this a while back, but it's mano o mano between Nancy and Donald, um, she is determined to bring him to heel. Um, and um, so far, she's kept her 
uh, her caucus in line, and um, there is somebody's going to have to get. You almost and get the, the sense that getting- you almost get the sense here, Joyce, that there's there's an effort by both sides to maintain promises to the electorate, promises that were made either during this past election cycle or during the election cycle two years ago, and neither side seems to be willing to run the risk politically of giving up those promises. And and I wonder if maybe part of the shift, at least that I feel I'm seeing here, is uh, it's not unusual for there to be differences of approach or opinion between, say, the Senate and the House or the executive branch and the legislative branch. Um, that's kind of historical, and, and quite frankly, if you look at the way the Founding Fathers put us all together, that systems of checks and balances and, and, and the occasional moments of friction between the different branches of government was kind of built into the system. What we see here now apparently is great, a greater sense of friction, not just between branches of government, but between the two political parties. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there hasn't been this much division between the two political parties since the um, late 1850s and the Missouri Compromise and, and you know, caning uh, senators on the floor of, um, of the, the, well, actually was a representative on the floor of the House of Representatives, um, and out of that was born the GOP. So maybe uh, we've reached the point where, um, you know, a it will take a third party to begin to uh, represent the majority of people. What we're we're seeing is the is governance by the minority. It, it's the uh, on both in both parties. It is the extreme. Remember that less than seventeen percent of the electorate nominated Hillary Clinton and an equal number, about 17, a little less than 17%, nominated Donald Trump. So you have the extremes of both parties, and it's really hard when you have that, you know, minority of the, of the, minor, of the majority um, able to stop legislation. But you also have an extremely, you know, you may not agree with Nancy Pelosi on policy, but the woman has, um, she's got the measure of the man, and, and she is um, an extremely crafty legislator. And, and um, we can't, you, you can't take that away from her. And then when you have an adversary who is as um, unpredictable and as um, easily, you know, mind so easily changed is Donald Trump um, and has such an ego, you have a prescription that the founding fathers didn't take into account because they thought the executive, remember that when they wrote the the Constitution, they already knew the first president was going to be. And so they created, you know, they knew it was going to be George Washington. So here was this paragon of virtue. And and in that sense, you could have the crazy Jacksonian Democrats with their coonskin hats in the House and the more uh, refined members of the Senate. And, and the coolest head was over there, in, you know, in the Federalist House in New York, but later in the, you know, think, think Jefferson. Jefferson was, a, was a, a very crafty politician, but a really calm human being. 
So we haven't had this type of the toxic mix of ego um, and polarized politics before. So what has to come out of this, Greg, what has to come out of this is we got to figure out not just how to get out of this shutdown, but how do we prevent the use of shutdown as a of government, of governing. Well, and, and that's a very valid point, Joyce, because that the Congress could not arrive at a budget deal that would be acceptable between the House and the Senate or between uh, the Democrat side of the aisle, the Republicans, or the budget was, uh, you know, facing lots of, uh, you know, line item vetoes uh, ad nauseum by the president. Okay, that part we get. Shutting down the government or or using this um, as a political tool by either party, I think, is completely out of line. And I think what's problematic here is, and we talked about this maybe the day after the election, and that was the notion that um, it, it was uncharted territory as to what would happen between the legislative branch and the executive branch once there was a party shift come January and Democrats took over control of the House and suddenly all bets would be off. And if the president feels like he's being backed into a corner, which clearly that's what Nancy Pelosi is trying to do, um, I, I think the president's trying to size up a whole new situation. He's never faced a Congress like this before. Nancy Pelosi certainly is, uh, think of what you will about her, and I'm no fan of hers by a long shot, even though we're both Italian. Um, uh, She is a very adept, astute politician. And don't think that she didn't look at, aha, the president needs to have an invite to be able to step onto the House floor. We're going to rescind that invite. And you know what? At the end of the day, the State of the Union address is a report that the president is obligated to give as necessary before the congressional body based on his observations at the executive branch. Never says that it has to be done on live television. Never says that it has to be done on a specific date, though traditionally that's what we've done going back to the time of radio. And I think she calculated, um, knowing the perchance that this president has for being on the the public stage, that denying him this, even for a short period of time, uh, was going to back him or paint him even deeper into a corner. And so the the fear now is, who is going to pop their top first? And sadly, the bigger picture here is not all of the 800,000 federal workers that are in the balance or folks that have been furloughed and people that don't have paychecks now for uh, the second time coming but the American people. Let's take a time out. We're going to come back to more of our conversation. Joyce Cordy is with us. Her program, Reimagine America, heard Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock on our sister station, 860 AM, The Answer. Information available on the web, resources, podcasts, as well at reimagineamerica.org. There are other things in the news we're also going to touch on. Word today, it is official. The um, Cal Fire has concluded the responsible party for the Tubbs fire. That was the devastating fire, not just this past year, but in 2017, the one which destroyed more than 6,000 homes and businesses in Santa Rosa. Well, the verdict is in, and the guilty party, not who you think it is. 
We'll come back to more of our conversation with Joyce Cordy from reimagineamerica.org right after this. 5.50, let's check in. Michael Bennett's got the latest for us traffic-wise. Michael, what's going on? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to the conversation. Just before we turn a corner, I want to get Joyce Cordy's input, insight on um, where things stand right now. So we, we get the sense both sides now are suggesting, well, the House can do something about this but chooses not to. The Senate can do something about this, chooses not to. Of course, the 60-vote uh, clother rule right now makes it exceedingly difficult um, for um, Mitch McConnell to be able to get anything accomplished uh, toward that end in the Senate. I know you have no crystal ball, but looking at all of this and understanding that, you know, ultimately there are political stakes here. Who do you think is, is running the greatest risk as this this outage continues, this this stoppage continues day by day? Well, um, right now I would say that, that Trump is going to be presented with a bill out of Congress, and he's going to have to make a decision about whether or not he can find a way to sign it or get a, his veto overridden because there is enough consternation. And, I mean, people who listen to my show have heard my solution, which is no no pay, no fly, that the pilot's union could end this in a couple, in, in, uh, a couple of days by saying, hey, it's Monday morning, the air safety is compromised, we're not flying on Thursday. Uh, and and I must be prescient because today the air traffic controllers, the carriers, and both the flight attendant and pilots unions put out a statement that said the, the, the risk to air safety and air travel is now uncalculable. In other words, the increase in risk is so much greater that they don't even know how to calculate that increase in risk. So I'm expecting that Schumer and McConnell in their meeting this afternoon probably uh, have the beginning of a way to help Trump save some face. But trust me, Nancy's not going to let him walk away with a smile. Well, and and the challenge, of course, here is that, uh, you know, every day that this goes for more damage is being done. And, uh, you know, the, the, the one concern that a growing number of Republicans have, and we're going to talk to Craig Huey about this um, on, on the, the other side of the hour, but and that is... Uh, come the election cycle, come 2020, uh, they're going to pull out that video clip of the president uh, seated with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and Mike Pence in the Oval Office when he says, my shutdown, I will do it, I will proudly do it, I will own it, I will take on the mantle. And they're going to use the president to run against the president in 2020. That's my fear. Well, I I believe that you're 100% right. I think we have more seats, uh, though the conservatives, uh, the GOP will have more seats at play uh, than they did in this last cycle. But I think there's even a bitter, bigger risk. Unless we have a way, you know, people go into government service for two reasons, the desire to serve and the sense of security that you get, you get less upfront pay, but you know you're going to get a pension, you know it's a steady job, you're not going to get laid off. Well, the best and the brightest are going to look at this and they're going to say, wait a minute, maybe I should take the big dollars in private industry. And in places like the FBI, we cannot afford not to have the best and the brightest. 
Well, and, and, um, and sadly, that's that's one agency that that historically uh, had been well respected. That's been excoriated at every turn. So, yeah, I, I, I can. I, your your point is valid, and by heaps. Uh, in that regard. Hey, Joyce, before uh, time gets away from us here, I've got to talk to you about uh, the 11th hour reprieve that has been handed down here. There was an announcement made earlier today following a year-long investigation by CAL FIRE into the source of the Tubbs fire. And, of course, the uh, the barristers, the attorneys had lined up 50 deep to file lawsuits every which way, expecting a huge payout um, and deservedly so, decidedly so, given the fact that upwards of five, 6,000 businesses and homes were lost. That would be the fire that impacted greater Santa Rosa area in uh, August, September of 2017. Uh, 22 people uh, lost their lives in this huge fire. And there has now been a determination, which I have to wonder at the end of the day, is this going to be the reprieve needed to rescue Pacific Gas and Electric from bankruptcy? No, it is a reprieve. So here is here for the listener, here's the, the really important takeaway. You want to talk about fake news. It, it was immediately speculated that the fire might have started because of the high winds and PG E wires and the trees, right? That was the early speculation. Um, <clears throat> nobody ever stopped and thought for a moment. Who, nobody in front of a microphone, that is, that there was any possibility that it wasn't a PG&E caused fire. So for two years, PG&E has been front and center, and there are, as you say, there are thousands of lawsuits. And today we find out, no, it was a private entity at, at beyond PG&E, which in fact... Um, had a private electrical facility that started the fire. Now, you know, my point is it it would behoove the major media, it would behoove all of us, right, to stop and say, you know, it's possible that the investigation is going to show something else. This, and, and so this is a real example of the hysteria of the pylon of of media people who you know speak into the microphone but really don't have substantive knowledge of what they're talking about and and that concerns me gravely and it's one of the the, the things that I try in my show to make sure people get the facts and then they can form their opinion and here everybody formed an opinion and the facts didn't prove it out and, you know, sadly, if this is one um, demonstration of that short-sightedness, we could say, well, hope they learn their lesson and and go home. But <laughs> this is the long litany, the long march, so to speak. Uh, many of these issues and more are covered more in-depth in Joyce's program, Reimagine America, that doesn't just focus on the problems, but also focuses on practical, real-world solutions. Joyce has decades of experience at high levels in corporate America, and really understands that in order to get a job accomplished, you need to be able to think outside of the box. You need to be able to bring people together from a variety of perspectives and talents and experiences. And uh, a lot of times our approach to problem solving in America is more engaging in political fighting than actually coming to the table and thinking through 
in order to create the solutions necessary. That's what her program does, and you can tune in every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. for Reimagine America on our sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. That's 860 a.m. The Answer, Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Information, resources, podcasts, and more available at Joyce's website, reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. All right, we're a bit late. You're stuck in traffic. You're saying, I'm I'm late too, Craig. What are you complaining about? (laughs) Let's find out why you're late. I know why I'm late. Let's find out why you're late. You're going to get to the bottom of this right now. Your spouse called and wants to know why you're late too. Uh, let's see what Michael Bennett can do to shed some light on this big mystery, Michael. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.